When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes Matt Brennan to discuss how jazz and rock became seen as two distinct unrelated musical genres and why that didn't have to be the case. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Matt Brennan, author of When Genres Collide, Downbeat, Rolling Stone, and The Struggle Between Jazz and Rock. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So struggle like this, this is genres colliding here. And you asked some key questions like I thought this was a really fun book. And I want to introduce kind of why I'm especially interested in this, because this podcast started with a 20 something part history of rock and roll with the late great Ed Ward and his methodology. I'm totally in love with. I love his storytelling. But he excised jazz from his history of rock and roll. Like he he didn't talk about Count Basie. He didn't talk about Louis Armstrong at all. Mm-hmm. But then suddenly Louis Jordan appears and becomes the father of R and B, who immediately then spawns rock and roll and and you know continues the whole story. Ed was talking about Muddy Waters and country musicians and things, but he he excised jazz, and I just felt like. That can't be right. I mean, you know, I was no expert on the period, but I'm like, Louis Jordan comes right out of of Chick Webb's swing band that he is the co-lead singer with Ella Fitzgerald. And she's jazz. Surely he would be jazz if he's playing with these heavyweights like this, you know. And so when I found your book, I immediately dived into it. And and you have two historical puzzles that you're trying to answer in this. And, And the first is why... Are jazz and rock scholarships so resistant to one another, despite the many similarities? And two, jazz and rock have intersected, overlapped, and collided in dramatic ways, and yet they've been treated quite differently in the press. And I'd say that that's bled out into the popular consciousness. If it was just journalists and scholars, I really couldn't care less. But I really feel like this division has bled out. I mean, you see so many books, really good books, that start histories of pop music in 1955, as if it was year zero, as if nothing before that mattered. 
And that's not really the case. I mean, what motivated you to write this book and how do you see those conflicts? What created that perception that they're two separate worlds and never the twain shall meet? Yeah, sure. Uh, that's a really good question. So, I mean, in terms of what motivated me to uh, write the book, I guess the the first impetus was just my own experience as a music maker. Uh, I'm a drummer and have played in bands all of my life, but I was the sort of drummer that, you know, would play in the garage, uh, you know, in, in the 1990s, it was for me, I guess, like, you know, alternative rock and grunge and all the rest with, with friends, uh, making a lot of noise. But then I would also after schools, uh, go to the high school stage band and, and, you know, any, any chance I had to play drums, I would. And that involved encountering jazz music. Um, and for me, it was all just drumming and I didn't really see those two traditions, jazz and rock, as being all that separate from one another. Although, you know, like like you've mentioned, in the public consciousness, we do tend to think of these as like, if not diametrically opposed, certainly like really separate worlds that, that don't cross over into one another. And, and that is for particular reasons that I explore in the book. Um, but when you approach it from a, from a musician's perspective, tons of jazz people play rock, tons of rock people play jazz, and and those boundaries sort of permeate one another a little bit. And there are obvious points of intersection, like the whole world of funk music, for instance. Um, so that that seemed obvious to me. And when I became more interested in the history of popular music, it was just as you said, like so many books started in 1955 and there was this disconnect. And the more I looked at, at jazz history, and I should say, by this point, I was studying jazz drumming at university. Um, so much of the uh, culture of jazz that existed prior to 1955, to me, seemed to have so many similarities with rock and roll, and specifically, all of the aspects of rock and roll that in the history books, people said distinguished it from jazz that made it different. So, you know, aspects of like, say, transforming race relations, the relationship between black and white audiences and black and white musicians in the United States, or uh, the differences between generations, between youth culture and the culture of their parents, differences in fashion, differences in politics, like all these are, you know, components of the origin myth of of rock and roll. And it seemed to be a revolution for across all of those themes. But, you know, having looked at both of those histories, it became really clear to me that jazz was part of this continuum, you know, that that jazz had all of the same, uh, you know, challenges to dominant culture in the United States in its own time. It just it just had a different timeline. And what the book is about is really looking at the overlaps in those timelines. So it kind of you know, begins with the the history of jazz before rock and roll, but all the ways in which it was actually quite similar to rock culture. Uh, and then really hones in on the 1950s and 60s when jazz and rock were making really formative steps in their development and trajectory that often placed themselves in, in very close quarters to one another, but then ultimately ended up diverging. You know, so so I guess you know one of the central claims of the book is that in 1955, it wasn't at all clear that rock and roll would ultimately 
would be this, you know, separate genre out all on its own. You know, jazz had had many kind of subgenres, blues, uh, bebop, swing, you know, which fell all fell under this wider umbrella known as jazz. In 1955, it kind of felt like rock and roll might end up under that umbrella. By 1970, that was absolutely not the case. And, and these two genres had clearly carved out paths that were heading in opposite directions from one another. And, and the book kind of looks at why that's the case. And there's a great quote you've got from 1955 from Duke Ellington himself saying, rock and roll is the most raucous form of jazz beyond a doubt. And so he's just assuming that rock and roll is going to be subsumed into jazz because he can see it. I mean, he could hear what was what were the ingredients of rock and roll and the R&B that it sprang from, which, you know, swing beats, blues, chord structures very often. Um the instrumentation of a of an R&B band or a jump band was very similar to what to a small swing band or a New Orleans style combo. The guitar based groups were known as skiffle groups or um, jug band groups when when they were you know played in Memphis and Chicago in the 20s and 30s, and that was obviously included in jazz. I mean, and the more you look at early jazz culture, anything that was raucous and people danced to in the 1920s was called jazz. It didn't even have to be that raucous and it would get called jazz, you know? Yeah. And, and, and yet there's this definite, you know, like you say that these, these lines get drawn. And one quote you had that I thought was really key um, was that this happened in a particular way at the two that, we can't take it for granted that jazz and rock would ultimately become separate musical cultures because there were particular events and particular people who put who drove the schism and put up these walls and made sure they stayed. But let's hear a little bit of music. And this is a song from a period that I'm just absolutely fascinated with. I, I've become obsessed with Charlie Parker and Louis Jordan at, because in the, in the 1930s, they were playing the same ballrooms. You know, they're both playing the Savoy in New York City. Uh, Charlie Parker's coming out from Kansas City with Jay McShann and is engaging in these kind of populist swing battles. Just the exact sort of thing that Chick Webb would get into with Benny Goodman, where they'd have two bands set up as opposite bandstands band on opposite sides of this immensely packed dance hall full of Harlem's most serious dancers. And Charlie Parker with Jay McShann blew Lucky Millinder off the stage. He was a popular artist or, you know, a budding popular artist there for a minute in the 30s. And here's a song from the 40s. This is Charlie Parker, Now's the Time. And I'll tell you why I picked that when we come back. Charlie Parker's song, Now's the Time. And I picked that because the riff becomes the basis for Paul Williams' Hucklebuck, which becomes one of the biggest R&B hit records of the late 40s. So Charlie Parker's providing the actual riffs for one of the biggest R&B songs during this period when 
rhythm and blues is becoming a new thing that's distinct from jazz, even though most of the musicians, Lionel Hampton, Louis Jordan, uh, and others, Lucky Millinder, uh, et cetera, are jazz come clearly from a jazz background, would probably describe themselves as jazz or swing musicians. And yet Charlie starts defining himself outside of that as this new thing, as bebop, as this art music. And dive into that. Like, what was the cultural context? What what were the critics making of, of Parker's division of jazz into, into this new thing? And when did it become clear that this was separate or separating from the activities of somebody like Louis Jordan, who's still ruling the dance floors? There was no schism between swing and R&B as far as Louis Jordan fans were concerned. Yeah. So I think that's absolutely right to focus in on a musician like Parker and his contemporaries because they're operating right at the at the axis or the cusp of these two different ways of thinking about jazz, you know, as being a popular form of entertainment on the one hand and being a form of high art that sees itself as you know, in, in opposition to mass culture, all, all the sort of trappings of, you know, a kind of America's classical music, as it often gets called. Um, and bebop is really the turning point there. So what's really interesting about bebop, first of all, you have to firmly situate it in the context of World War II. That's the, the biggest overarching context. And that really matters for particular reasons. First of all, tons of musicians um, get drafted into the war, so they have to serve, right? Uh, you have a lack of musicians, and then you also have a lack of money. <laughs> People uh, are less well off. They're uh, investing, uh, you know, company finances, government finances into supporting the war effort, and it also makes certain resources scarce. Uh, so gas, for instance, or the vinyl used to make uh, records, all kinds of things. Drum kits. Uh, I know this is a drummer. The you know, shellac, we're... actually, not to be a nerd, but just got to correct it. Cause... Yeah, of course. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, shellac. So a kind of limestone and slate that would have been used to make shellac records. Um, you know, these materials were, were rationed, as was, you know, the brass to make uh, brass instruments and the metal fixtures for, for drum kits. Thanks for correcting me on that, by the way. Sure. Because uh, I, I am likewise a total nerd about these things. Uh, <laughs> um, so anyway, you know, bebop originally, you know, comes partially out of being a response to that, the necessity of kind of creating uh, a smaller group context that isn't relying on 20 people to make a sound. Uh, but then it's also this different venue for this type of music. So in, instead of filling large ballrooms, they're playing smaller clubs, which are, you know, more for listening than for dancing. And as that, you know, change of venue occurs, this music starts to become more harmonically sophisticated, more rhythmically complex. In, in other words, more difficult to dance to, uh, but at the same time, more virtuosic. And jazz musicians are, uh, as well as critics, are, you know, trying to make the case that this isn't, you know, the lowest common denominator of taste. This isn't like mass entertainment. This is something which involves, you know, which requires highly skilled, you know, musical training. You know, not necessarily the type you get in a classical conservatoire, but 
you know, hours and hours of practice of, 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 of woodshedding. And it's a legitimate art form and it's all right in its own right. So there's this kind of repositioning of jazz, both commercially and ideologically that happens with, with bebop. And then by the end of the 1940s, when things start to get back to normal, uh, there are new social contexts, new technological contexts that kind of uh, start to reinforce the divide between music that's made for dancing. So Louis Jordan is an absolute pivot point here. You know, Charlie Parker gets claimed for jazz, uh, you know, and taking the bebop line, and Louis Jordan playing, you know, jump blues music, which would absolutely have been considered jazz. And as you point out, he's playing with Chick Webb and others. Um, you know, musicians like Slim Gayard, I talk about in the in uh, the book as well. You know, jazz trained musicians who are playing music for dancing, for entertainment, suddenly get excluded from this jazz tradition because they're no longer fitting the criteria that bebop has set out for for what what gets what gets to count as jazz essentially and what does not and they end up being uh the origin of a of a different story uh which is that of rhythm and blues as you've pointed out but the music is exactly the same and it comes from exactly the same place we're really just talking about terminology here rather than anything to do with you know what the music sounds like or even the musicians who play it you know, so many of the early rock and roll records and certainly all the rhythm and blues records are made by jazz musicians who are, you know, see R&B something with a stronger dance because, you know, just part of their palette, part of their vocabulary. You know, I'll play this record on a Saturday session and a bebop record on a Sunday session. You know, uh, it, there's huge overlap, but people increasingly begin to perceive this same activity as being somehow different, you know, in different ways, I guess. And let's hear another song. This is Choo Choo to Boogie by Louis Jordan. And I've, I've zeroed in on his sax solo because the dude had chops. This is a legitimate jazz saxophonist. Louis Jordan, Choo Choo to Boogie. Take me right back to the track, Jack. Great Louis Jordan doing choo choo to boogie. And there's another aspect of this that you didn't dive into that much in the book where Louis Jordan had a very crowd pleasing demeanor. He mm -hmm. had a lot of jokes in his songs. His lyrics were the direct inspiration for Chuck Berry, and his guitar players were the direct inspiration for Chuck Berry's licks, too. Um, but he carried himself very much as an entertainer, as a pleaser. He was a little bit older. Than Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and, and the Young Lions of Bebop, um, and he had kind of that Louis Armstrong willingness to clown, and that was the sort of thing that Dizzy and Charlie Parker were not into. They took themselves quite seriously, and by the time you get to the second wave of bebop musicians, people like Miles Davis and Thelonious Monk and Charles Mingus, I mean, they'll punch you. You know, like that they are grim and serious. They, you know, Miles Davis would turn his back on the audience. It was very much to be treated. This is an art music. This is art. This is serious business. And so there's this definite 
intra-African-American political debate going on. And um, there's also a debate, though, going on in the pages of Downbeat, which is a the jazz publication and, and one of the biggest music publications in America at the time. Tell us a little bit about how Downbeat emerged from the swing fans and the hot jazz fans of the 20s and 30s. Where did this critical culture start to develop around jazz? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, ever since there was jazz to listen to, there have been people trying to make sense of it. And some of those people would get termed as critics, you know, people trying to draw value judgments on jazz and to explain why this record matters and that record doesn't, why this record's good, that record's bad. Um, the So that, you know, really begins, you know, with World War One and the very beginning of of jazz entering sort of public discourse and 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 getting covered in the press and and often people struggling to make sense of it, uh, but by the 1940s you have this established jazz press. So I mean the first uh, big boom of jazz was was in the 1920s, but a a second significant boom for jazz is sort of the mid 1930s with the swing era, and that's where you really start to see the first specialist music magazines in the United States focusing on what was the popular music of the day. So I, I guess one of the, the key arguments that I'm uh, making in the book is that, you know, we often think of a magazine like Rolling Stone as kind of being the first time anyone starts taking American pop music seriously. But if you just kind of take a moment to zoom out from that perspective. The exact same thing, of course, happened with jazz in the 1930s. And by the 1940s, Downbeat is a very well-established publication. And critics uh, are making sense not just of swing and the decline of swing, but also bebop. Musicians, as you noted, like Miles and Mingus and the rest, uh, you know, having a very different type of performance uh, and signifying very different values than their contemporaries like Louis Jordan. In other words, kind of reinforcing this high-low divide that already existed. This music is to be taken seriously as opposed to music which is just for fun, something to throw away, something disposable. Um, you know, that, that tension is playing out not just on the stages of these small clubs, but in the pages of publications like Downbeat. At the same time, Downbeat is a commercial enterprise, right? It's a magazine that has to sell copies. And their main uh, business is essentially connecting advertisers with readers. And so they're, they're more open-minded and more reactive to trends and changes in pop music than we might now think of them retrospectively. Like if you pick up a copy of Downbeat in the year 2021, you know that it's a jazz publication and that is its core focus, absolutely. But if you pick up a copy of Downbeat in 1950, when there's this uh, insurgence of country music on the charts, you have the establishment of the rhythm and blues chart in 1949, you know, it's hedging its bets as a magazine editorially in terms of what to include in the magazine and what to exclude. So there's a country music column and there's an R&B column and those records are being reviewed in that magazine even though it started out as, as a swing uh, era magazine and ultimately ends up as, 
as a jazz publication. That was actually another key thing that drove me to write the book um, was that by the time I was a PhD student and doing some archival research, uh, I wanted to, to look at the history of jazz in downbeat and was going through these microfilm uh, copies of issues at the library and then was seeing, oh man, downbeat's covering Elvis Presley, downbeat's covering Ray Charles, downbeat's covering Hank Williams. This does not match my perception of that magazine. Like, what's that all about? And, and in the early stages of the book, that absolutely drove me to just like find more examples of that, you know, pop music and musicians that we know extremely well being uh, interpreted by people from outside the genre that we've now come to associate them with because those boundaries were, were more porous, were, were less fixed uh, in, in the 1950s than we now think about. And one thing that you get into in this as sort of a subtext is sort of the racial politics and the gender politics of who's making the music and who's writing about the music. And one of yeah. the things that the 1930s swing critics, or they were originally fans, and we're like, you know, fans with fanzines, they're originally reviewing records out of passion. Um, but then people like John Hammond emerge from this scene who become A&R people, who, you know, discovers Count Basie, discovers Billie Holiday, has this big impact on the pop music and 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 the the business of of jazz music but the writers in these magazines are pretty much all male i mean there's there's pretty much all male and pretty much all white absolutely exactly and yeah, yeah I, I meant to say all white and then go into the male uh, they're pretty much all white except for Leroy jones later mari bakara and others but but it's a very white thing but they extol black musicians so they kind of delegitimize any white musician playing jazz. Whereas, you know, the first wave, Vic Spiderbeck and others, I mean, Paul Whiteman was considered the king of jazz in the 20s, and that was pretty well accepted, you know, as strange as that seems to us today. But people like Vic Spiderbeck and Jack Teagarden and others were seen as great jazz men by hardcore fans. But over the course of the 30s, especially when you see groups like Glenn Miller, who's not you know, he's sort of defined out of jazz because he doesn't improvise. And, and and they're trying to draw these lines like and they like hot bands and they and they, they decide that the black bands are the hottest. Therefore, they're the best. And at the same time, the record companies are only letting the black bands record hot music. There's lots of black band leaders who want to record sweet music. You know, Louis Armstrong's favorite band was Guy Lombardo. And, you know, so there's a lot of factors going on, this sort of forced, quote, authenticity. But there's also this sexism. And there's this figure you bring up who covers R&B for Downbeat. And she's a woman. Her name's Ruth Cage. And she got it. She really was covering R&B in a respectful manner as part of the jazz tradition. What happened to Ruth Cage? Why is she forgotten? And how did she lose that argument? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. I was totally fascinated by by Ruth Cage uh, when I was doing the research for this, just because, you know, we if you're a music nerd, you have probably a list in your mind of maybe who the most influential jazz critics or rock critics might be. So, you know, John Hammond and Leonard Feather, uh, you know, on, on the jazz side of things, perhaps. Uh, Robert Criscow, John Landau, Jan Wenner, um, these types of people, maybe on on the rock side, um, and and again, almost exclusively 
white men. Uh, certainly in the 1940s and 50s, uh, you know, you had uh, no African-American uh, critics with a regular column in, in any of these publications and no women either. So Ruth Cage is an African-American woman, you know, writing about R&B in the pages of Downbeat is just such an anomaly and so interesting uh, because of this. Uh, clearly, she was brought in as another local expert, essentially, in the same way that they brought in a country and Western DJ to, uh, to cover country and folk music uh, in the early 1950s and downbeat. Ruth Cage was brought in to, to do a job that either the established jazz critics didn't want to do because they looked down their noses at R&B by the mid-1950s, uh, or that they weren't qualified to do. They didn't understand this music. So you have her writing about uh, artists and and also trying to make sense of these R&B uh, artists to a jazz audience, pointing out all of the similarities that we've just been talking about here. Um, and it really goes against the grain of the magazine to the extent where, you know, she kind of in in her column on R&B gets into issue by issue feuds and debates with Leonard Feather, who ha uh, who has his own column in the in the publication. And they're going back and forth uh, discussing the merits uh, of, of rhythm and blues and also bringing in jazz musicians and R&B musicians to, to augment their arguments. So, you know, different jazz musicians throwing mud at R&B players or vice versa. Uh, it makes her pretty interesting reading. Um, as to why she left, I think it was basically an editorial decision uh, on the part of Downbeat, although uh, unfortunately she she passed away, uh, I think in the late 1970s, certainly well before I would had a chance to to interview her. Um, so, and there's very little information about her besides what she actually wrote in the publication. I learned that she entered public relations on uh, the West Coast in California in the entertainment industry, and that ended up being uh, her kind of main career in the 60s and 70s. Um, but you know, really had been a figure that was totally forgotten to history, but uh, really an important one precisely because she offers us this alternative viewpoint, this other way of looking at music of the 1950s uh, that that wasn't getting discussed elsewhere, and, but that is actually a really important way for, for fully understanding the position of R&B, you know, as this in-between uh, genre between the missing link, essentially between between jazz and rock and roll. Yeah, absolutely. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll talk about jazz press's attempt to cover rock in the mid '60s before the rock press emerges. And so we've talked about downbeat, and there's you know there covering country and R&B and, and rock and roll, Bill Haley's on the cover, in the 50s because they've got to sell magazines. And their real business is selling ads to primarily music instrument makers who want to sell instruments to young buddy musicians. That's who buys instruments. And there's pressure on them to cover rock and roll because that's what kids are wanting to play. But in the 50s, rock kind of surges and then ebbs. And Downbeat finds a happy place with the jazz education movement. This is around the time that jazz starts being taught in bands and schools, which is only fitting because so many of the jazz musicians got these great free public educations in music. You hear about the great music teachers in Kansas City and Memphis 
in New York and L.A. and other places that educated people like Charles Mingus and and identified talented people like like Charles Mingus and, and you know, educated them and brought them along. So that gives Downbeat kind of an out from the dilemma they were in. Jazz had been massively popular. They start a magazine. They sell a lot of copies. The swing era ends. Jazz isn't as popular anymore. Bebop kind of wins over the jazz critics and and the hardcore of jazz as art fans, but loses the dance fans. And there was a point, you know, Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker go out to L.A. in the early 40s and play these big halls. And they're highly touted and much anticipated because the people on the coast, it was kind of like when the Sex Pistols came to America in the 70s. There's all this <laughs> buzz about the new thing. And then the new thing gets there and people go, and no thanks, <laughs> you know, like people did not want to dance to bebop at these big dance halls. And, you know, even though there's a West Coast scene and people like Dexter Gordon are, you know, there is an audience for jazz, people like, you know, the whole cool jazz scene coming out of California. But nonetheless, it's people like uh, Big J McNeely and, and Slim Gaillard and others that are dominating these dance halls in L.A. And, and they're moving clearly into R&B, one note saxophone solos and things like that. But then as the 50s end, and, you know, this is all set, Downbeat stops covering country, they stop covering R&B. We're about jazz. There's a big market for jazz because high school bands are teaching jazz. Kids have to buy jazz instruments and learn about jazz. Uh, but then as the 60s go on and rock and roll comes back and comes back in a big way with the Beatles, uh, you know, talk about a year zero, 1963, 64, you know, the Beatles basically kill everything in their path that was going on before musically. And there's also clearly signs of artistic impulses in the newly coined rock music market. It's no longer rock and roll. Now it's rock music. There's folk rock and um, all these, you know, variant forms, surf rock and different forms. So it, it becomes convenient to use rock as an isolated term. And so, you know, you talked about the irony of jazz critics having dismissed R&B and rock and roll in the same exact ways that classical critics had dismissed jazz in the 20s. This is primitive. This is barbaric. This isn't musical. Yeah. But suddenly those arguments are harder to make. How did Downbeat and their competitor Jazz Magazine deal with this in the mid-60s when they had the field essentially to themselves? I mean, they're competing with like 16 Magazine and Hit Parader. But otherwise, they've got the music beat to themselves for a brief window. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, reasonably substantial circulation figures. So, you know, uh, Downbeat in 1968 has a circulation that is reaching around 100,000 people across the United States. Rolling Stone, which publishes its first issue in, you know, at the end of, I think it's November 1967, you know, their, their first print run is under 10,000 copies, right? So how does, how does that transition take place? Certainly, uh, the, in Downbeat, the decision to, to cover rock music was driven by editorial and by advertisers, essentially instrument manufacturers needed a place to sell, say, guitar amplifiers. And, there wasn't any music publication to to go to to reach that market apart from downbeat so there was a real push i think from uh the instrument manufacturers who as you point out were the mainstay uh you know uh business to business uh commercial aspect of the magazine obviously they also would make money from selling issues of the magazine but you know it wouldn't have been a viable model without 
these important advertisers. That's that's what pushes downbeat. And they end up, you know, similarly to Ruth Cage in the 1950s, recruiting people who were younger, who were uh, outside the jazz scene to uh, to write about rock and roll and to talk about the Beatles and Cream, but also uh, musicians like Larry Coryell, uh, who or Blood, Sweat and Tears, who were trying to experiment with uh, fusing jazz and rock together and, you know, and mixing elements of both of them. Uh, jazz magazine was a, a, a magazine in that was based, I think, out of the East Coast in New York City. And it's a slightly different uh, story for, for it because its editor, Pauline Ravelli, she was a younger editor uh, and she very much became a convert to uh to the rock movement in the mid 1960s. And so it was in her own musical tastes that, that she made the decision to uh, change the name of the magazine to jazz and pop and start including rock music and all uh, sort of things that were happening in the, in the counterculture at that time, again in 1967. Um, whereas with Downbeat, the editor, when that decision was made in 67, was Dan Morgenstern, um, who having interviewed him, uh, he told me directly that like rock was something that was very puzzling to him. He didn't feel confident in his ability to, to judge or to write about it. Um, so it, the decision to cover it came from, you know, advertisers and the, the content of the magazine was bringing in outside writers essentially. Whereas with jazz magazine turning into to jazz and pop, that was a more internal uh, decision. It didn't really matter what advertisers were saying. It was something that they were caught up in the culture with and enthusiastic about. And I guess that also uh, bears a strong similarity to another jazz critic who certainly wrote for Downbeat throughout the 50s and 60s named Ralph Gleason. Uh, and he has a similar sort of almost religious conversion from being a jazz person to being a rock person in the mid-1960s. It doesn't hurt that he's uh, living in San Francisco at the time, but he goes on to uh, play a very important role in the foundation of, of Rolling Stone magazine. And let's hear another musical snippet. And I was really torn. This is the toughest choice I had to make on my on my musical picks because I want to represent both the soul jazz movement, which, you know, if you're a Ray Charles fan and you and look back at his work, he's got all these great R&B hits, Hit the Road, Jack, What I Say, etc. But he has all these albums that are like the genius of Ray Charles or the soul jazz of Ray Charles. Atlantic Records was pushing Ray Charles as a credible jazz musician. He played the Newport Jazz Fest. He was a credible jazz musician. I mean, you know, watch, sure. watch any footage of Ray Charles. You know, I mean, there's there was literally no one on earth. Like, I don't think John Coltrane could cut this dude. You know, like if if <laughs> nobody's going to come up to Ray Charles and say, "Dude, you cannot play jazz. You're, you're corny." No, Ray Charles was a jazz musician, but he's also this very popular musician who then goes into country music. You know, and and kind of gets. He's not a darling of downbeat. But there's no. this whole school of what they call soul jazz. Soul first emerges in pop music as a term as part of soul jazz. It's not, you know, the Otis Redding, Aretha Franklin kind of soul we think of now. It's people like Ramsey Lewis Trio getting a number five hit with the song called The In Crowd. So I was really tempted to pick that because that leads directly to George Benson and jazz funk and smooth jazz and, and so many trends um, that – were disparaged and ignored by critics, both jazz and rock, and yet had a massive popular appeal and continue to have this musical influence. But 
I decided to go with Mike Bloomfield and Al Cooper instead. And this is from their Super Session album. This is His Holy Modal Majesty. And this is two guys from the rock side, Bob Dylan's most famous sidemen on Like a Rolling Stone, basically creating a jazz album self-consciously. This is Mike Bloomfield and Al Cooper, His Holy Modal Majesty. his holy modal majesty from mike bloomfield and al cooper's super session and steve stills is also an album but not on that track and i call that a jazz album because they recorded it like a jazz album they got some great musicians together quickly they talked about what they were going to record in the studio it was a mix of improvisation and covers there's none of this months-long songwriting uh, process that has you know, the rock method of album making, which was a thing by by the 1968 when this album came out. And because Bloomfield was such a gifted musician, he could credibly play jazz solos in a way that, say, Eric Clapton with Cream could not. Clapton, great guitarist, but did blues solos in this sort of jazz context, which is kind of the magic intention of Cream. But Bloomfield can pull it off. I often wonder what would have happened if Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker had found Mike Bloomfield or, or Jeff mm. Beck, somebody who actually could uh, expand into jazz. But anyway, this album sells half a million copies. This is a gold record. So there's an audience for it. And at the same time, you know, both of these guys with Electric Flag and Blood, Sweat and Tears, Bloomfield and Cooper had respectively been leaders in the horn rock movement or the jazz rock movement that sees, you know, Chicago emerge uh, and 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 blood, sweat, and tears. This is a, a really big thing. There's the Buckingham's, tons of pop hits. Um, so so rock is trying to move towards jazz, but there's a real resistance. And you compare the reactions of two very different critics. Uh, Robert Criscow on the rock side absolutely rips cream up to pieces from a live show. And there's a jazz critic whose name I'm unfortunately blanking on, who saw Alan the same. Heineman. Alan Heineman, thank you. And um, he saw the same show and really praised it. And the two of them have an exchange. Tell us a little bit about that and why Chris Gow rejected it and, and why Heineman accepted it and why, you know, Chris Gow essentially won, at least in the rock press side. Yeah, well, it's it's just one of these interesting moments of uh, fate and coincidence, I guess. So, in fact, there was a third critic involved named John Landau. Um, who folk may know, uh, he's, he's now best known as uh, Bruce Springsteen's manager. Uh, and the most famous line he ever wrote as a, as a rock critic was actually a, a review of a, a Springsteen show in the early 1970s before he had broke uh, I Saw Rock and Roll Future, and its name is Bruce Springsteen. And shortly after that review came out, he went on to uh, uh, convince Bruce Springsteen that, uh, you know, in order to really make it, what he needed was a change in management, and that manager was was Landau, who started out writing rock reviews for Rolling Stone. Um, so, John Landau, uh, a critic for Rolling Stone, and 
Alan Heinemann, a critic for Downbeat, both happened to uh, be students attending Brandeis University on the East Coast, where Cream were playing a show. And they were both at that show and both reviewed it in Rolling Stone and Downbeat, respectively, which is this really interesting case study where you kind of have the two different ways of looking at exactly the same thing, almost in kind of perfect lab conditions, you know, like how, how are these going to be written up differently? And of course, um, Heinemann takes this, this jazz view that what Cream are doing is really important and all of these uh, long improvisations and experimentations with form are, you know, uh, are the way forward. He sees this in an, in an entirely positive light where Landau takes the opposite, opposite review. And then Chris Gow, who then uh, goes on to become an extremely important rock critic in his own right, um, ends up reading, I think, both of those reviews, but writing a letter to the editor in Downbeat magazine uh, explaining uh, essentially why Cream are taking the wrong path, that these long improvisational solos that they're doing are boring, that there's no point to them, that it defeats the purpose of pop music, which is to be short and sharp and make you want to dance rather than make you want to, I don't know, um, sit around and, and listen to uh, an Eric Clapton solo, <laughs> which was what was going on at the time. Um, so, you know, there are these two, it's, it's essentially, a, you know, a jazz way of looking at things and a rock way of looking at things coming into Clash, the same music being both praised and dismissed um, using different sets of criteria. And both sets of criteria, you know, in their own way, make a certain amount of sense. Uh, and it's not, you know, uh, for me as someone who's who's researching this to say, oh, yeah, man, Chris Gow was definitely right. Landau was right. Heinemann was wrong. You know, it's it's an interesting moment in music history. It's to, it's to say that people really, uh, you know, took a line on this, um, which had consequences, which ultimately, you know, the the meaning that you projected onto this music uh, ultimately shaped not just what records you were going to buy, but what magazines you were going to buy and led to a magazine like Rolling Stone uh, establishing this kind of coherent definition and consensus as to what rock was really about, which was at the end of the day, not what Cream were doing. Um, and quite famously, Landau's review uh, and dismissal of Cream and Rolling Stone was something that Eric Clapton read and uh, and cited as the decision why he broke up Cream, which of course only lended more weight to, to Rolling Stone as being an increasingly significant magazine in, in the late 1960s. Yeah, absolutely. This is the one period where rock critics really mattered. I mean, they're a new phenomenon Obviously, the power of the press is something that's as old as Martin Luther. And, you know, rock critic, rock musicians like Eric Clapton tended to be middle class and, and art school graduates often, as in his case. And they took that very seriously. It wasn't until Led Zeppelin comes a, a, along you know, pretty soon thereafter gets slagged by Rolling Stone and figures out they can just go straight to the FM DJs and go around to these critics that that. You know, the critics are relatively quickly neutered as this aesthetic force, but they're for a minute in 67, 68. They're this absolutely dominant force. And it wasn't just Cream. I mean, the MC5 becomes produced by John Landau. John Landau's yeah. first thing is to produce their second record and a total change in direction. They go from this jam oriented, heavily free jazz influenced combo, whose first album had made the top 30 in the charts before Electra dropped them for 
you know, political missteps. And his second album for them is this new wave opus that would have fit right in in 1977. It's all short, sharp songs and, and you know, very thinly produced and trebly. It's what the band wanted to do, but he, he channels this. So these critics are having this big, big um, influence and impact at this moment. And like you said, the, the jazz musician, the jazz critics are coming at this at a disadvantage. They're not native to the rock music and they're, and they're kind of like 30 something guys trying to show up at the college party and, and be hip. And that's, you know, not a good look. Yeah. (laughs) Not not a fun thing to do. And and so, um, but there's this big festival in 1969, the Newport jazz festival, 1969. This is the same year, obviously as Woodstock and Altamont, just a couple years after Monterey. And the Newport Jazz Festival has been a big deal throughout the late 50s and into the 60s. They've had riots and ups and downs and taken years off. Uh, they, they split off the Folk Festival, which became a very big deal in its own right. But for this one year, they really try to do their best to combine jazz and rock in one concert. And you know, you've got um, Sly and the Family Stone uh, on, on, on the stage with some really unlikely seeming a jazz artist. Tell us about that and how that festival was seen at the time and how it was sort of retrospectively seen. Yeah. So the Newport Festival is a really important cultural barometer, I think, in terms of like, by which I mean, it's taking the temperature of where music in the United States is going. And it, like a magazine, is uh, a business which, and its business is selling tickets to to audiences and it needs to assemble lineups and bills that, you know, it, that the curator, George Ween, the promoter will, you know, is, is convinced will, will fill the capacity of the venues that he's hired. Um, and so throughout its history, Newport always kind of flirts with music that might not be within the kind of core boundary of, of jazz music. So, you know, Chuck Berry plays in, plays Newport in the 1950s. Um, there are gospel acts like Mahalia Jackson who will uh, play occasional art and reed groups, but it's it's core and also the very name of the festival is, uh, is a jazz festival, the Newport Jazz Festival. Um, by 1969, it's clear that rock is a major commercial force in the industry. And in the same time that rock has ascended uh, and and grows the recording industry uh, significantly in the second half of the 60s, uh, the commercial prospects of jazz have made uh, a similar but inverse nosedive. Um, so Ween has this festival and is wondering what to do with it and very deliberately decides to program a mix of leading jazz musicians and leading rock musicians. So the bill, to be honest, man, I wish I had been there, uh, is totally amazing. You know, a lot of artists who who played at Woodstock, for instance, uh, 10 years after, but like artists also like Jeff Beck, Jethro Tull, Blood, Sweat and Tears, Frank Zappa, but then also significant jazz musicians, Miles Davis, Dave Brubeck, Art Blakey, Gary Burton, uh, and then Led Zeppelin, finishes this weekend festival off on the on the Sunday evening. So it's a total mix of uh, genres and also audiences. And I guess what's really interesting about it, it's interesting for a lot of reasons, um, but it's no longer this discussion uh, about like whether jazz and rock can 
uh, merge together or can get along with one another. It's no longer a debate that's playing out simply within the pages of magazines, but it's something where people and audiences are physically together in a field. Can those people get along when they're actually listening to a festival that's placing a jazz act followed by a rock act, followed by a jazz act, followed by a rock act. And as it turns out, uh, they couldn't. There were dis audience disturbances. Um, it was not deemed to be a successful festival. And, and for various reasons, ends up being kind of written out of the history of American popular music. Um, what's been really interesting to me this summer uh, has been watching uh, the documentary Summer of Soul. Have you had a chance to watch that, Nate? Oh, yeah, it's a treat. Yeah, it's a fantastic film. Uh, about another festival which takes place in 1969. And so, uh, and, and another forgotten festival. So, you know, the festivals in the same books that we were talking about where the history of American popular music begins in 1955 with rock and roll, as if no music made prior to that year mattered, um, the only live music events that matter in 1969 in those same books uh, are almost inevitably Woodstock on the one hand uh, and Altamont on the other. You know, these two uh, festivals which have now taken on a kind of mythological status in popular music history. What Newport 69, as well as the Harlem Cultural Festival in 1969 provide are windows into, you know, cultures of music that don't fit into that narrative and are super interesting for it. Uh, so, you know, Newport and the fact that it uh, gets uh, represented as, as being a sort of failure, a failed experiment in the jazz press, in a way kind of consolidates and confirms this discourse which had been happening over years where, uh, where jazz and rock were seen to be kind of uneasy bedfellows, essentially. Uh, and it is, it is a really decisive moment, I think, uh, particularly given that, you know, this is the, also the time when uh, the most important artist working in jazz at that, of that period, Miles Davis, decides to very explicitly make a move towards rock uh, with his album, Bitches Brew, uh, and tunes from that, of which he's uh, experimenting and playing around with, you know, in Newport 1969 at that festival. This is, this is the moment really where he's looking from the side of the stage at these large audiences, much larger audiences than the jazz audiences he, he's been drawing previously, despite being the top grossing jazz musician of that moment. And he says, do you know what? I'm going in a rock direction, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make a different move here. And how that and gets perceived in jazz history, you know, is uh, closely tied to, to those festivals. And let's go ahead and hear a little bit of Miles Davis from Bitches Brew. This is Miles Runs the Voodoo Down.
was Miles Davis doing Miles Runs the Voodoo Down from the Bitches Brew album. And just the lineup of musicians. I mean, he's got some of the guys he'd been working with uh, on that album, like Wayne Shorter, Bernie Maupin, Joe Zawinul and others. But, you know, then you've got people like John McLaughlin, who had been a British session man and a peer of Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck and others, comes over. You've got Harvey Brooks, who literally played on that um, Mike Bloomfield Al Cooper session and also played bass with Bob Dylan. Um, and, and, you know, people like Chick Corea that are going to go on and be lions of the jazz fusion move, movement. And so there's this musical facts on the ground happening. And Miles is Davis, you know, this album is very successful. It ultimately goes gold and becomes his best selling um, album. But retrospectively, there's this sustained critical marginalization of fusion, whether it's on the jazz side, like Ken Burns and Stanley Crouch and Wentworth Marsalis excised fusion, just like the excised free jazz from the official PBS history of jazz. And rock critics have very aggressively and thoroughly excised jazz fusion from the narrative. That's starting to change. Um, and Yeah, I think that's right. It's been really interesting just, just in the last like five or six years to see, you know, artists like Kendrick Lamar very explicitly drawing on, you know, jazz music and uh, jazz sounds for, for their records where suddenly like jazz has become kind of hip again. And I think that, you know, for maybe uh, folk of, you know, who are under the age of 25 listening to this podcast, you know, you, they might think what jazz and rock music totally belong together. Like we do this all the yeah. time. What's the big <laughs> deal, you know, but that's really a relatively recent shift in, in how we think about that broader history. Absolutely. And, and, you know, in your conclusion, you talk about how it was sort of a coincidence, but for a period, you know, Rolling Stone was covering jazz as well. They had Sun Ra on the cover of all things. They had Miles yeah. Davis on the cover. Um, and yet, right around 1970, there's a, a staff purge. I mean, Ralph Gleason, who's been Jan Winner's mentor, leaves for his own reasons. And he's a very credible jazz critic. But there's a whole slew of other people who've been writing about jazz, and they're all sort of purged ostensibly for political reasons. But the net effect of it is, you know, Rolling Stone rolls into the soft rock singer songwriter movement. It's going to champion, um, you know, pretty much unhindered by any look at jazz. Sum it up. Like, what's the conclusion of the book? And why did you stop at this point? Because I had expected really to dive into the fusion era with you and, and, and kind of hope that you take that on uh, later on down the road. But Wrap it up for us and tell us why you stopped at this point. Yeah, sure thing. I mean, to me, I guess 1970, some of my favorite books uh, on music history are these revisionist histories that end at the point where you think they should be, you know, where you might have assumed they would begin. So, like, say you're looking at, you know, you're, you're like, I want to get a book about the relationship between jazz and rock. You know, a good starting point for such a book, one might argue, is 1970, right? With Bitches Brew, for instance, chapter one. You know, Miles Davis, you know, uh, creates this, you know, unprecedented uh, merging of these of these different genres. Uh, what I'm interested in is the long history that led up to that point. Uh, a great there's a great book by John Savage called Teenage, and it's the history of the teenager. And it ends in 1955, you know, <laughs> the moment when we might That's think, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, the moment when we might think of that kind of category of the teenager emerging. 
uh, in, and and many books say that that's the moment when teenagers come into their own. You know, an author like Savage says, Do you know what? They didn't just emerge out of a vacuum. And what's interesting is the untold story, right? Uh, the story that people don't know so well about how things that we now think of as like inevitable or revolutions, how they came to be. So um, that's that's really the reason why uh, I ended the book in in that year. And also there are um, some quite good books that do deal with the uh, fusion era that were, that already existed. Uh, Jeff Nicholson has got a great book on jazz rock. Kevin Falez has a great book called Birds of Fire. Um, and I didn't want to, you know, repeat <laughs> uh, work that had already been done. I wanted to tell a different story. And for me, this was a story that I thought was new and one that deserved attention. So yeah, that's, that's why I decided to, to end it the way that I did. Um, but you're right. It does sort of uh, set things up for, for a different sort of book that would take that story forward. And, and hopefully maybe one that would take us up to, you know, recent developments that we were talking about just in the last five or six years in the kind of jazz renaissance that's been happening. Absolutely. And so Matt Brennan has been our guest. The book is When Genres Collide, Downbeat, Rolling Stone, and the Struggle Between Jazz and Rock. And I want to close with a quote from you. Um, jazz and rock are different genres, but this difference is historically constructed. Rock could have been part of jazz, but did not become so for particular reasons. And it is possible to reconsider key periods in music history when the boundary between the two is not nearly so clear. And Matt, I think you've done that, and I think you've done it brilliantly. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate wraps up Season 12 with Doug Broad to talk about the myriad connections between Kiss, Aerosmith, Cheap Trick, and Stars, a group of 70s hard rock bands that are weirder than meets the eye. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Edward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.